I'm Casey. And I'm Matt. And this is Too Much Film School. Today we're talking about The Muppets, the uh, brand new 2011 Muppet film and not the original 1979 uh, The Muppet movie. See, it's, it's the Star Trek thing. The original Star Trek was Star Trek the motion picture and then the remake, it was just called Star Trek. And so The Muppet movie became just The Muppets. I really uh, love the hell out of this movie. It's probably the funniest movie I've seen this year. I also really enjoyed the movie. I can't think of anything else funny that's been out this year. So it, I'd say it's the funniest movie ever. <laughs> My in-laws didn't want to see it. They thought it was for kids, and they ended up going seeing Jack and Jill instead, which I said I would not walk into. And so my wife and I went to a different theater and saw The Muppet, or The Muppets? The Muppets, the movie. But uh, I think that there's a misconception, or people just don't know out there what they really are anymore, who it's for. Yeah, I mean, it. it's certainly appropriate for kids. Like, I would not uh, be against taking my seven-year-old nephew to see it. But uh, it, I can't imagine anybody, if you went in with, in good faith to, you know, like a 13-year-old who hates his parents or whatever, like, yes, he's probably not going to enjoy the movie, you know, in that sort of like teenage wannabe cool kind of way. But like anybody goes in there in good faith, like, let's give this movie a chance, will enjoy the hell out of this movie. Yeah, I think it was... Very funny. I think the the music was well done. I Brett McKenzie from Flight of the Concords. Life's a Happy Song was a great number. It was a great way to open it. It just set this positive tone and was funny with the uh, rhyming up to they had the filet of fish. <laughs> Which is a sort of joke that they do on Flight of the Concords. Yeah, I thought it was the right tone. And Jason Siegel, I know and love from Himium, How I Met Your Mother. And uh, so that was a similar, again, level of comedy that I know to expect from him. It was kind of a wholesome... Amy Adams from uh, Enchanted. She she sang and danced and was delightful in that movie. And a uh, similar-ish role in this, but which is not to take away from uh, either performance. She's, she's great in both. Um, they both managed to be... God, if you describe it, if I said, oh, they're sweet and lovable, you'd be like, oh, God, this is just the most saccharine... Saccharin, yeah. Awful, and it, yet it's it's not true. I think falls in there somewhere, like wholesome and yet believable or genuine. And none of it's ironic either. It's not Pleasantville, where uh, oh, there's some darker side to their uh, their their Leave It to Beaver life. No, they're just nice, sweet people that we all sort of wish we could be. Again, I I enjoyed the movie. I thought it was great overall. I think one of the problems it had for me, or not necessarily for me while I was watching it, but one of the things. Again, maybe my in-laws didn't understand or people may not take away is people are confused about what their audience is. They might think it's a kid's movie. And then inside it, you actually see that there is a lot of more intellectual humor. There's a lot of referential, like uh, reflexive references to the fact that it is a movie. They say, hey, Kermit, you got to get the old gang back together to save the theater. He said, no, I don't think we'll do that. And Amy Adams says, wow, this is going to be a short movie. And it was hilarious, because it, that would make it a short movie. <laughs> uh, but I think younger kids might not get that. Grown-ups would laugh at it. But I think, as a comedy, they don't have catchphrases that really work. Not a lot of the jokes were kind of repeatable. They were situational comedy. Yeah. Uh, that don't really... They're not as sticky as, say, other comedies, even for grown-ups, that you might talk about afterwards or say the lines, you know like Anchorman or something, I Love Lamp. You know, those kind of one-liner, shticky... What about fart shoes? Fart shoes. <laughs> See, that's the one thing, is that the one character with a catchphrase, or, again, they probably all have catchphrases, but right. they are subtler, 
is Fozzie the Bear has catchphrases waka waka and he has the fart shoes and he has these shticky elements, but those are ironic. The point is that he's such a 1930s-esque <laughs> vaudeville comedian like that's not really funny that they have Jack Black make fun of him and that is the ironic part is that those aren't funny and so him bringing them up, you know, again and again becomes funny because of how out of touch kind of he is. So your problem is that there's no lines that you can quote in your Facebook profile later on? <laughs> I think it's not my problem. I think it's why overall they continue to kind of fade into the background very quickly after their movies or things like that is that they don't stick with young kids. People often confuse Sesame Street and the Muppets and Sesame Street has a much bigger following because there's Elmo and they give very short, you know, personality quotes kind of, you know, and children from eight years and younger kind of attach to that. Then you transition to the Muppets who are a little older. People might look at them and still go, oh, they're puppets, they're for kids. And then they're not drawing them in like, say, I think even Avenue Q kind of had catchier, like songs that at least push the limits and so make it around the internet and people see and know more recognizably. Right, and Avenue Q was deliberately like, this is not childlike. Right, and so it kind of said, hey, here I am, and was a little more shock value, but again, that makes it stickier. People will quote it, talk about it, put it on their Facebook, whereas the lines and jokes are have to be set up, they're situational in the Muppets. So while they're hilarious, uh, while you're watching it, I think the takeaway is a little less and it, it fades a little quicker, even though it's doing really well you know, in the box office and probably will spark a little bit of a renaissance for them. I think that this is why they keep fading. Yeah, I think a lot of the things that people do remember about them are their their famous musical numbers, like Kermit singing Rainbow Connection, and I, which I have a quibble with Okay. the Rainbow Connection. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? I can name two songs about rainbows. Somewhere Over the Rainbow... And the Rainbow Connection, when half of the songs you're talking about are the song you are currently in singing, that's not really a large number of songs about rainbows. I will have to agree with you there. I... It always, even as a child, I was like, what songs is he talking about? There must be all a world full of rainbow oh, songs that I haven't know. learned yet because I'm still a child. No, those are the only two songs about rainbows. Why are there so few songs about rainbows, that Kermit? Yeah. yeah. I also enjoyed seeing a lot of the elements uh, just because I'm local here to Hollywood, Los Angeles. <laughs> we actually live on La Brea, about three miles south of the Jim Henson Studios, and so drive by it on my way to work and was able to see that, or Pink's Hot Dogs, Hollywood Boulevard. Seeing them, those landmarks kind of made it really, I felt personal to me because I have I've gone to events at the Jim Henson Studios. They open it up for different... You can rent it out for I things. actually applied for a job there once. It's not dilapidated, like like it appears in the <laughs> right. film. But they did film there. Like They took the actual Jim Henson studio and put cobwebs and boarded up the windows and stuff. But it's crazy. I remember the first time I walked in there, I was like, this is what I imagined Jim Henson Studios would be like when I was a kid. There's like a, a gingerbread house. Someone has an office that's in a tree house. You have to climb up a rope ladder. And they have the giant, uh, with the things from the Dark Crystal, like a whoa. There's one of them is like sitting in the bushes as you're just walking around the studio. It's really like a child's wonderland. And I can't believe that it exists for real like yeah. that. No, I... Thought it was pretty impressive. I had always wanted to go in there, uh, also because it's originally Charlie Chaplin Studios. Before there was anything around, it was all Orange Groves. I had always wanted to see it as Charlie Chaplin Studios, and they actually have loving like homages to Charlie Chaplin in that on the top of the arch of the entranceway. There's a large Kermit the Frog, but he's dressed as Charlie Chaplin with the cane and the bowler 
and then they have a painting of Charlie Chaplin on the front door peeking out. I don't think I knew why Charlie Chaplin was there. Oh, I was just like, no. You know why Kermit well, is everybody... like the lovable tramp on top of the studio. I, I also thought that everyone from the silent era dressed like that, so I thought they were just making him old-timey. There you go. <laughs> I don't have as much history with the Muppets, per se. I was aware of them growing up. I saw, I think, each of the movies, but again, they didn't stick with me or it wasn't my favorite thing. I watch more actual Muppet babies. I always respected um, the Muppets as a work because it is craftsmanship, it is physical, especially if they were made up now, it would all be CGI. And the idea of actually making something that you manipulate in front of the camera as tangible did always resonate with me that it's kind of craftsman and it's an art form more so than a lot of modern characters. So I think that I always respected that. And then seeing the way they treated the Chaplin Studios, but can't think of storylines from the movies or... <laughs> A lot of the character names. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is just you enjoy their personalities and whatever random stuff is going on. And it's a lot of visual gag and, like you said, situational humor. So you sort of like their essence. You know, like in The Simpsons, you wouldn't necessarily remember a particular storyline, but you like the general vibe of The Simpsons. You like the general vibe of Muppets. Correct. Going back to what you said about the craftsmanship, it's actually sort of amazing when you watch the movie. Someone uh, sitting next to me commented, we, we sat through the credits just on the off chance they had an after-credits joke, which they didn't, so you can leave after that, if you haven't seen the movie yet. And they said, wow, those are those are surprisingly short credits. And I was like, that's because they didn't have like an entire second production worth of visual effects right. going on. Half hundreds of the Korean nation <laughs> working on. But the amount of work, you don't really think about it when you're watching it, but I heard an interview with Jason Siegel and his co-writer, Nick Stoller, and so much thought has to go into every single shot. Because just, just imagine anytime a Muppet character is sitting in a chair, they can't just go to a store and buy a chair and put it on the set. They have to either make the chair or they have to like hollow it out. So a, a puppeteer can climb underneath and operate the puppet in some fashion that it's, he's capable of sitting there. And even then they're probably still like stuffed in using the wrong hand for every single shot. And you take that even further, there's, you know, song and dance numbers. They'll cut holes in the floor for the Muppets to walk around. That means the actual people who are dancing have to not fall in a pit <laughs> while they're dancing around. They even took it so far when they're driving around in the car. Jason Siegel said it was so cramped. He and Amy Adams had to operate a couple of the puppets while they're singing. Like their hand is surreptitiously like snuck down and around and moving some other characters to sing and dance because there's just not enough physical room. And so all of the thought and choreography of putting all that together in like the extra expense of any stage space that they have, they didn't just build the set on the floor, like they built every set three feet off the ground so a dude could not be seen by the camera. There's so much physical work going into this. Well, you could say it's all really there, except that there's there's a large number of shots of their legs. They were sort of weird and distracting sometimes. It's weird anytime you see the Muppets beat. Yes, oh, great. <laughs> they walk not around. used to it. You realize that the thing we love about you is that you're actually made of felt, and you're physically there, and Jason Siegel could reach down and touch you, and you're a physical object in space. And that uh, CGI creation that's manipulated by hand, not really what we want to see. <laughs> yeah, I imagine they have a lot of pressure to advance, or, you know, people, I'm sure studio executives and people are saying, like, oh, no one cares about real puppets anymore, but that's part of why people that do love them, love them. They wouldn't want to see it done any other way. Yeah, and we do think of them as the Muppets and Sesame Street for the most part, 
But they also do creature effects in other films that you wouldn't even think of if something needs to be manipulated, but it needs to be physically there and be operated by a person. The Muppet Studios is often about them or uh, Stan Winston. Basically, they'll make the thing from the thing. They're one of the leaders in actual physical onset items of fantastical <laughs> nature. But I think with this movie, actually, more than I can remember seeing, it, for as impressive as the artistry was, you got uh, a lot more sense of seeing the hand maybe in Kermit's head when they would do a lot of the expressions I could see his head distort and be like oh those are knuckles up at the top. Yeah I think part of what has changed with this movie versus the ones especially the ones from the late 70s and early 80s is the pacing in terms of shots per minute has increased drastically like there's not a lot of wide shot there is a lot of close-ups a lot more than I remember ever seeing I mean the television show they obviously didn't do a lot of close-ups because it's tv you don't have time to shoot a lot of stuff but even in the films there weren't a great number of close-ups in this movie like there, there'd be a conversation between Walter and Jason Siegel, and it would just be 15 close-ups in quick succession. You really have to look at them really closely and that happened with Kermit enough that I was seeing scenes as a player. Yeah. Could, um, it may have been always that way, and just, you know, back then they didn't have to pander to the ADD audience. Russ, I, I might have seen Muppets in Space in the theater, I'm not sure. I don't remember the last time I saw Muppets in the theater where, like, Kermit's 30 feet tall. And speaking of theater, I actually saw it at the El Capitan in Hollywood, which is the theater in the film that represents the Muppet Theater. On Hollywood Boulevard. On Hollywood Boulevard. And so they had the dilapidated marquee that they had with the, the Muppets and the sign is like rotting and falling off. That's an actual movie theater in Hollywood. And that is where they had the premiere and where they're, they're, they're having a, a run of the movie right now. And so, of course, everybody in the theater laughed seeing that because it was like, ah, that's the theater we're in right now. That's one of those weird things that you get when you live in Los Angeles. Yeah. You're like, I'm watching this movie in the theater that the movie is set in. <laughs> I, mean, you don't, I don't know if you get that other places. Uh, and of course, like, you know, all the stuff that they're singing and dancing on Hollywood Boulevard, they're like, oh, we just walked across the street. There's no one singing or dancing, but yeah. there, there was a hooker passed out on nice. the corner um, lying under, a, a, you know, some newspaper. <laughs> I didn't no, I see that in the movie. Yeah, I again drive up La Brea past the studios and then uh, actually go down Hollywood Boulevard for work. And I think I remember a day when it was shut down when I think they were filming some of those numbers and I had to go Quenga. <laughs> so definitely get a different experience working around. Several years ago, they had closed down Hollywood Boulevard for Hancock. And to me, it's just like, ah, oh, goddammit, now I have to go down Sunset instead of Hollywood in it. When you watch Hancock, you're like, really? I had to be an hour late for this piece of shit? At least the Muppets. I was like, well, I enjoyed that movie, so yeah. I'll, I'll accept the inconvenience they caused. So we talked a lot about how funny it is. We definitely think it's funny. But uh, structurally, also, it's a really well-put-together movie. There's four or five different plots going on at the same time with Piggy and Kermit having their relationship stuff and then Walter and Gary's you know, brother relationship versus Gary and Mary's romantic relationship. And then uh, Animal has this whole, like, uh, drug addict plot uh, line going on that's sort of weird, but, you know, works. We keep sort of bouncing around between them when we don't lose track of who everybody is or why they're doing what they're doing. And Gary and Walter's plot line affects Gary and Mary's plot line. And um, in terms of just a story where characters want something and are fighting antagonists and stuff, it's, it's really well done. And even on that level, in terms of plot and structure and stuff, one of the better movies I've seen this year. And yet, it's not likely to get any sort of Academy Awards notice at all because A, it's a kid's movie, and B, it's a comedy. But I would argue it's it's better than any of the shitty indie movies that are going to be nominated this year. I really like the, the writing and the, the story. 
for as much as I spoke about the jokes and catchphrases not being sticky or not resonating or maybe not sticking around, I did say the uh, Life's a Happy Song was actually the best one out of it and the only one I can actually remember any of the words to. Oh, really? The Am I a Muppet or Am I a Man is still stuck in my head. Like this morning while I was taking a shower, like it kept going back and forth in my head and I was like, I actually started to dislike the song because I couldn't get it out of my head. <laughs> All right, so that one might be a little sticky, but until you said it now, didn't really remember it from the movie. And like all of the Muppet movies and like, and like the show, they had a bunch of cameos. Like Sarah Silverman shows up right. and she plays a waitress and doesn't do anything. You know, 20 years from now, it'll just be like, why is she in this? Yeah. Versus Jack Black, who, whether you know who Jack Blacker is or not, like he's doing a funny character and like... Somewhat like, funny. I think it was funny that they're like, oh, we need a big name star. And I'm like, not Jack Black. Is he? <laughs> he's not a big name star. Like his star is not rising anymore. I think the film itself needs a star that kids will recognize and know and the Kung Fu Panda movies are successful and Jack Black is popular amongst that age group. Yeah. So I guess he just ironically that, that that's part of the plot in this <laughs> with my age group. But they they're like, oh, we need a big star. I'm like, you already used Jack Black previously, and again, he's not as big. But might just be with my generation because doing less tenacious D now and just cranking out kung fu payment. Some of them were good, but like Zach Galifianakis playing a homeless person was sort of like he's a creepy homeless person. <laughs> Even though he's dressed up with the stubby cigar and it's like, oh, he's Hobo Joe. He's the classical tramp again. He looks like he's going to rape one of them. He homeless. does have a murderous edge <laughs> to behind his eyes. There's always there and he's cultivated it you know, through his career. So putting him in there kind of brings some of that to it when it shouldn't, I don't think it was intended. The one that, that sort of bothered me the most was uh, Jim Parsons from the Big Bang Theory, playing the man to Walter's Muppet in the, in the Am I a Man or Am I a Muppet song. That was so... Distracting. Yeah. Unnecessary. I was like, it's the guy from Big Bang Theory, but he, the Muppet that went with Jason Segel looked like... They tried to make a Muppet that sort of looked like a Jason Segel Muppet, and he sort of behaved like Jason Segel. Like, Jim Parsons is not who I would have thought... If I said, find me somebody who looks like Walter, Jim right. Parsons was not it. And he didn't perform like Walter... He sort of stood stock still, and then when it was his sort of line to sing, he then like threw a lot of emotion into it, and then he stood stock still and sort of looked confused. And it really it felt like, to me as someone who who's sort of watched this Big Bang Theory, like it seemed like it was that character found himself in a Muppet dream and was sort of weird and like Aspergery about it, but. If you don't watch the show, you don't watch the show. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't actually read that into it because I watched two episodes of the show and thought it was terrible. <laughs> um, so I just went, oh, it's that guy. He's not even doing the voice of Walter. Why are they have him being the human version? It was more just distracting than anything. I thought he showed a little more emotion or moved slightly differently than the two times I saw him on Big Bang Theory. But at most, it was just distracting and unnecessary. John Krasinski is in the movie, the guy from The Office. He's one of the people who answers the phones. And I was like, he kind of looks like Walter, and his persona is the everyman. If he was there across from Walter in the mirror, I would have been like, yes, John Krasinski. That's exactly who I would have thought of. And he clearly wants to be in the movie because he's in it. Yeah. So, and he actually, I would say, could look like Jason Siegel's brother. Hmm. Uh, the one reason I might hesitate on that is that since we're so used to Walter being very small, John Krasinski, even as tall as Jason Siegel is, strikes me as tall as well. He's probably only like three inches shorter than him. So, John. transitioning him to looking at Walter and then looking at him, I'd be like, he's far too big. 
Whereas uh, Jim Parsons is a small baseball-sized head. <laughs> he's, like, lanky. So even if he is tallish, he, he comes across... I don't know if anybody's... Spindly. Jason Siegel is taller than everyone, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. There are certain shots when it looks like he's taller than Sweetums, and that he's pretty monstrous. Which I think... Obviously, he, he was the driving force behind the movie, and so he... You know, was he going to be right in this movie no matter tall. what. But I mean, no, no, I just meant to say, like, it's sort of an odd choice to be like, okay, we have a guy who's three feet tall, and then put his comedy partner is going to be nine feet tall. Like, that seems a little odd, although it's sort of funny, like, the contrast between them. But, uh, you know, obviously Jason Siegel wanted to be in the movie, so he's he's going to be in the, in the movie. But still, it was sort of, it was interesting that they cast probably the tallest actor in Hollywood <laughs> to be in the Muppet movie. Um, and Amy Adams is not particularly short, but standing next to him, he looks like he's going to eat oh, her. Yeah, I thought so. she, she came across as very short. I'm like, <laughs> the cameos, other than Jack Black's, did seem to me geared towards the adults. And there's also, there's a couple of jokes that were adult-ish. Like them that, trying to call Bob Hope or Kermit's Rolodex, I thought was funny in that he's pulling up. Yeah, I didn't get to read all of them, but he does mention a couple of like, oh, he says, can I speak to President Carter? <laughs> Like, yeah, the little kids aren't going to get those. But they're funny and sort of harmless. But, like, when the Swedish chef says, say hello to my little friend, and then murders <laughs> everything that's in the fridge. That was a little dark, I yeah. would say. I, Swedish chef, I don't think he had enough time in the movie, I'll say. Because he's <laughs> one of my favorites. And I don't remember him. He clearly cooks and the food sings. But I don't remember if there was much glee in the killing of food, like, in his in previous incarnations. Yeah, that was that was weird. And then uh, when Walter's running away from the studio, and the camera is, like, strapped to his body and, like, shaking as he runs. That, that, and I've seen that elsewhere, but, like, that shot was invented for Requiem for a Dream. Like, they took a Steadicam rig and then actually put it on uh, Jared Leto and then pointed the camera at him instead of away from him, and he just ran, and the, and the camera just shakes like that when you when you have a camera attached to you, and it was it was exactly like that shot, and I was like, that's a little weird, <laughs> and granted, it's effective, right, and and that's why they used it in Rick Weird for a Dream, but weird <laughs> that yeah. that I was thinking of that movie while watching the Muppets. I think yeah, that it is the most notable use of it from Rahuel for a Dream. I don't think this was a Requiem for a Dream reference. It was just a. <laughs> Oh, this is his, it's now a, this shot means he's in an altered, like a panicky or altered state of mind. So they're using it, but it is kind of like the shaky cam from Evil Dead, where if you get a camera and run with it on a two by four and it can't be angle, people are going to think of that movie. Right. Even if you're like, no, I'm not making a reference. Like, that's where it comes from. So, uh, I don't think they intentionally did it. I didn't necessarily go that far in thinking it. It did stand out. as, But I thought it also worked for the joke of, and again, this is one of those things that was very funny, situational, where they have the, him screaming in that shot, and then him screaming on the bus, and then him <laughs> screaming in the hotel room, and it's just... Although that, that gag, I felt like, and maybe this is just from a decade of Family Guy, like, I would have expected, like, three more iterations, iterations of him in different places screaming with that expression on his face. Mm -hmm. And they, they did it, I think, four times. And I was like, that's a weird place to stop. Like, it, it was wasn't long enough to be like, look how long they're doing it, but it wasn't, like, just sort of your basic three. I think it was succinct enough. They were just trying to get the point across. After that point, you have to push it even further, like the chicken joke from Family Guy or, right. or something to where it comes around to being funny. <laughs> I don't think they wanted to go through <laughs> through All the that not work. funny part. Yeah, they have a they short movie. They want to keep kids interested. Overall, we were talking about some of the cameos or the references that showing how dated they were, the Muppets. That kind of falls in with what I was talking about earlier, where they just kind of fell out of favor. And 
even their original show was a variety show, which only happened in the 70s. Like, <laughs> the format itself was dated. Then uh, they kind of fell out and did Muppet Babies to stay with kids and things. But then they come back in the movie, and it's all about, hey, no one really remembers this anymore. And then they try and do the telethon, and they're like, oh, we need a big star. And like I said, Jack Black, I was like, meh. And they have Whoopi Goldberg and Selena Gomez show up, and they're like, oh, Whoopi, Whoopi. Goldberg, and who are you? Like Whoopi Goldberg, I was like, because I, I think she's she's been on the Muppets a lot. I think she has like a past with the Muppets. But I was like, she's not a, I'm not impressed that Whoopi Goldberg is in this movie, because... Well, it was kind of a joke on her, too, because she says, she says, and says hey, someone told us we could be socially relevant again if we came here. So it's, it's kind of saying she's also past her prime and just desperate, whereas the uh, chubby kid from the George Lopez show or whoever that was next to Selena Gomez. He's from Modern Family. Oh, I don't watch Modern Family. You're a racist. Okay. <laughs> wow. He's Mexican. He must be from the George the Lopez show. Mexican show on the air. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to stand by that. So, uh, Although, again, the point was... Fairness, I had no idea who Selena Gomez <laughs> The point was that we don't know who these people are. And they're like, hey, please make us socially relevant. So it was kind of a joke that way, but... Well, no, no, no. I, Selena Gomez, is she not popular amongst kids? She probably is, but... But, uh, but that kid, he's on, a, he's on the biggest comedy on television right now. And it's owned by the same Frame. conglomerate that, that owns the Muppet. So, like, he actually was, it, like, he should be a cameo, and, like, that that is actually, and him not knowing who Kermit is is a, Kermit isn't relevant, but he is definitely. Oh, I thought the line was Kermit didn't know, I mean, Kermit didn't know who either of the two kids was. But that was because he's out of touch. I sided with Kermit on this one. I don't That like kid that I is one of the lead characters of the most popular sitcom on television. child TV actors. He's, I will say that right now. He's not a good actor. He's sort of probably the worst part of that show. Yeah. But it's still a giant show. He's he is relevant. You're sure he was not on the George Lopez? Show? I'm not saying that he's not on the George Lopez show. Interned at a talent agency that repped the kid that was on the George Lopez show, and I thought I uh, filed his headshot, but I thought maybe he just gained weight. <laughs> All Mexican kids look the same, is what I'm saying. So. Uh, Back to the plot line of them not being relevant. Um, it, the, I think the movie kind of revitalizes them, and it does feel like shot in the arm. Maybe it's just my uh, dark... Well, sort of, sort of ironically, they're trying to get more attention, and yet, uh, for two weekends in a row, Twilight made more money. <laughs> they, they were the number two movie in the right. box the last two weekends. They still pulled in... Eh, 55 million over the last two weekends. I mean, that's... It's certainly not bad, but it's not uh, it's not kung fu panda money. <laughs> yeah. So I think they'll have a little bit of a rebirth, but maybe not. Uh, just they're not back on top. They're you know, and the end of the movie kind of shows that with the telethon only bringing in ninety-nine thousand uh, dollars. But then they walk outside. They're like, okay, we have each other. They walk outside, and there's streets full of people cheering uh, and eventually dancing. Like it's like, why didn't any of you donate a dollar? Like maybe, we could have done. <laughs> maybe those are the donors, and on the phone they're like, "Yeah, if you donate, come on down." But it, they clearly have a niche enough going to stay relevant, but they're not going to. Also, I have a little quibble when they when they changed the uh, the when the they realized that the sign was wrong and that it wasn't nine million dollars, it was ninety nine thousand and change. That means the first person who donated money donated a quarter. 
Because that was like the first call was, it said 25 and I was like, ah, $25. But in retrospect, they put in 25 cents. Well, uh, seeing the empty theater in Hobo Jones, like, <laughs> that's probably where it started out. Um, yeah. So, but like, who, who's like, I'm going to call them up and I'm going to pledge to give you 25 cents. Um, but, uh. Other funny uh, cameo. Neil Patrick Harris answering phones. Uh, he was on Himium with Jason Siegel. Yes, I was waiting for him to show because I was like, he sings and dances. He has to be in this movie at some point, right? Host shows, and then his line is, yeah, I don't know why I'm not hosting it either. (laughs) I actually, I I didn't hear his line because there was the line immediately before it got a big laugh in the theater that I was at, and so I I couldn't actually, I was just, that Neil Patrick Harris was there was sort of enough. (laughs) No, it's, he answers the phone, he says, yeah, no, I know. I don't know why I'm hosting it (laughs) as to why he's not hosting the telethon. Right, right. Since he does a work. Which also, uh, also, on your point of why is Jack Black the person that they kidnapped, they could have gotten, <laughs> uh, they could have gotten him. That whole plot, though, there's, there's a little bit of a, a fringe uh, logic problem with the whole thing that, do you not know what fringe logic is? I swear we talked about this on another podcast. It's, Let me go back and listen to them. <laughs> it's on. It's a TV trope, Fridge Logic. Uh, although I think it was it was originally created by uh, originally mentioned by Hitchcock. Uh, you go to a movie and you're like, oh, that's great, or whatever. And you're driving home and you think about the movie. You get home, you open the fridge, you're like, wait a second, that part doesn't make any sense. Why didn't uh, Liam Neeson interrogate the other guy in the car uh, in Taken instead of okay. uh, just? Killing the guy and then and then walking away. Answer was because he's a badass. <laughs> Anyways, a fridge logic. logic. The whole thing is, their show was popular, stops being popular. Their uh, studio goes into disarray. They've all broken up and moved on with their lives. Some of them have. I Miss Piggy seems perfectly happy, except that she's missing her boyfriend. But like her job is great. She loves living in Paris and everything. Uh, Ralph. Did you was, know that was a devil's wear? Devil Wears Prada. Did you see Devil Wears Prada? No, because I felt like at the time I was someone's personal assistant and I was like, I, I, I do this every day. I don't want to actually watch that. Emily Blunt was the assistant. And she I couldn't figure it out. I was like, why did everybody laugh when that character appeared on the screen? Same haircut and everything. Oh, okay. I thought it might be it might have been a reference to something. You know, Miss Piggy's life seems fine. Ralph seems perfectly relaxed in his hammock. <laughs> Fozzie is not too happy with his life. and, and uh, But Bunsen and Beaker are, are having fun at the... Did you notice that that was the large Haldron Collider? Like, I was the only, I, la- I was the sole voice in the entire theater that cracked up because I was like, that's a large Haldron And then Beaker gets vacuumed up and everybody laughed. And I was like, no. The, the joke was, <laughs> they're at the forefront of groundbreaking science. Accelerating <laughs> particles. Everybody sort of has mixed results. Uh, but, but basically, like, life goes on. And this theater is in disarray. The the guy, the evil guy, whose name is Tex Richmond, so we're uh, defaming uh, the state of Texas right. and uh, wealthy uh, job creators. I don't know if you've noticed, <laughs> you know, any of the Occupy streets, but that's uh, in vogue right now, so. Well, no, I understand what I'm saying is Job wrong. creators. Oh, my God. Uh, that's a great word to describe rich people. <laughs> job no, creators no. in China and India. Let's give them tax breaks so they'll create he, okay. jobs. This guy wants to create a new business in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. He wants to create a new business in the city. There's property that is not being used for any productive purpose at all. He wants he 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 can put it to good use because we uh, we have an oil shortage. He wa- and he just wants to con- he wants to grow his business, hire some more people. 
and then start selling a product that people want. And he has this like evil laugh and the, these evil henchmen, but like he says maniacal. And he says maniacal laugh, which I didn't entirely understand that they, joke. They later said, "Oh, he is unable to physically laugh." I'm like, we could have used that as a setup. Like, yeah, he should have said, and then be like, they, the minions could have been like, try it, and he's like, laugh, maniacal laugh, you know, and started saying. Maybe they cut it for time, but... I, I remember that reference later on, and I was like, is is that what's been going on this entire time? That was a weird joke. Up until the part where he shoves a fire axe into the power cable, he doesn't actually do anything evil. He's just, he's in a boardroom, and he has the trappings of evil, but doesn't do anything bad. And then these characters, they just say, can you just give it to us for free? And he's like, just because you have some nostalgia for the good old days when you used to be popular, they all say we're going to do one show, and then once again it's going to lie fallow and become a waste. It's it's not as if uh, they use the ecological defense that you're, you're, you're... I mean, first of all, there's no natural pristine beauty on La Brea anyways that he would be destroying. And if he's, if, but it's not like Kermit's like, hey, you're going to give cancer to all the people that right. ride by in La Brea. He's like, I just want to, like, like a Bruce Springsteen song, relive my glory days. I know you want, and I know this is worth millions of dollars to you, but uh, let me sing and dance uh, instead. Is that the best uh, motivation? Like, he's not, I guess he's not the worst villain. It's just, it, it, it basically the movie just assumes uh, that if you see an oil baron, you will agree that he's evil. Like, like they didn't have to do anything other than say, oil, ergo, evil. And I was sort of like, that's not... He didn't do anything. I don't know. I, I It's... A little hippie-ish for you. And granted, like, the Muppets are hippie-ish. I mean, look at, look at uh, Jim Henson. Like, clearly super hippie and stuff. Um, and I'm sort of... I'm fine with the let's all be friends message, uh, but I'd like the villain to be more objectively evil than just a guy trying to make a living. <laughs> and granted, like, he didn't like the Muppets, but, you know, he has bad taste in television. That doesn't make him a bad person. Um, you didn't like the Muppets. No one's calling you evil. I didn't say I didn't like the Muppets. I just said I they were in the background. I didn't uh, seek them out growing up or remember. You were too busy them. digging for oil. Exactly. Trying to put my kids through. So, <laughs> yeah, I agree if you actually lay out the actions taken by each of the individuals. He's not the big bad. And Although, again, it's by, by definition... Furthering our dependence on dirty fossil fuels. That's true. And again, by definition, it is fragile. did not think of it at all during the watching of the film. It was only later that I was like, he didn't really do anything that bad. I was sort of upset by the ending. Like, I knew, I had heard somewhere or other that, like, he had a change of heart in the end. It was someone's interview or other. And, and like, you sort of expect him to have a change of heart anyway. So, like, because it's a kid's movie and whatever. And then he doesn't... Like, technically, they lost. They don't have the theater. They've lost the Muppet name, which uh, I don't know why that didn't come up until, like, the third act. Like, that was a weird like, bit of information to hold hold off. Uh, and they've completely lost. And then they're like, well, we've got each other. Fine. That's the end of the film. And then he gets hit on the head. And I think that's the, the part that I was going to say for going on. Much longer, Gonzo's bowling ball arm spinning. I thought that did go on plenty long. I thought it was hilarious because yeah. because they didn't dwell on his arm spinning. It was just in the background. It was just, yeah, and it was just every time he cut to him, you were like, oh, I forgot that his arm is still spinning. Uh, and then he lets go, and he hits, he hits the uh, Tex Richmond in the head, 
And uh, and then it says, like, there's even a joke in the headline, like, his change of heart is not caused by a head injury or whatever. But, like, having that happen after the credits, it seems like an after-credit sequence that either should be in the film before the credits or it should be after the credits. <laughs> but instead it's playing during the credits. I don't know why they put it together that way. That was a weird place to put it. I agree that it did seem like that and maybe, again, his maniacal laugh things. They could have set up better within the film or giving him some more actual tangible evil actions kick a puppy or two chris cooper has a strange way of delivering lines it seems like he just he walks in they hand him in his lines and i like okay these are the words i'm going to say right now and he just sort of says them but he has an accent and so you you're like oh that's what a texas oil man would say but it, they they come out kind of weird and I, I don't even know how to describe it and when he does his his evil rap they had the bouncing ball thing over the words and I feel like they must have put those there because they thought we weren't going to understand the words that he said. It's entirely possible. I think I remember thinking that. I was like, why are they bouncing ball on none of the other song numbers? But I thought they didn't set that up very well either. It could have used a line of him saying, them asking, can we have it free? And he could have said, I'm going to tell this to you in a way you'll understand. You know, because they do musicals. It seemed out of character for him to be bursting in song. I so, sort of, it, it's out of character for him, but in character for the film, so it didn't throw me off that much. And, like, he sang in a way that was different than everybody. He, he right, I think just wrapped in it. For some reason, even though he has the uh, Muppet minions there, felt like he was in the real, more in the real world than the rest of them, you know. And His so. name was Tex Richmond. <laughs> Still. I'm not entirely sure how much of the real world he was in. That reminds me. Walter was the only non-Muppet Muppet in the movie. I realized they brought out a new Muppet and everything, but they just went, he has a normal life in small town. Jason Siegel's his brother, even though he's not a Muppet. It's not a genetic hereditary race type thing, and yet we never see a person in the background that's also a Muppet just being like, no, random seeded throughout the population are Muppets. I'm like, how could he not end up being a Muppet? They're like, oh, what's your bit? And you, you're going to be part of us. Like, he already is. He's made of felt, very small. Like, everyone recognizes this. They mark his height off. And I'm like, are they a race? Like, what? Or a yeah, genetic? Because it's not mentioned. I think I sort of took it as one of them was adopted. And I imagine Walter because, because of the human hand. I was for the third act scene of, like, of the troubles with Mary or something. And then for it to come out that he was adopted. And I'm like, well, there you go. It makes sense. I, I was never mentioned. I was expecting a joke of mom and dad never told you. But I'm adopted or something like that. I guess it's sort of like in, um, this is a weird movie to reference in this context, but in From Dusk Till Dawn, <laughs> Harvey Keitel has the uh, Asian son. And I don't think there's a point where they say, you're my adopted son or something. Yes, they do. There is one reference where George Clooney says, uh, you're not Japanese. And the kid's like, well, first of all, I'm not Japanese. I'm not. I'm Chinese, and secondly, he's still, I'm still his son, or, or maybe Harvey Keitel says the line or something. Yeah. But that's the extent of it. But, I mean, anytime you see two characters that are of different races and they say they're brothers, you would assume that they're one's adopted, so it's exposition that... I mean, what other explanation is there other than that he's adopted? Are the Muppets a separate race, or is it, a, you know what I mean? Like That part is a little weird, explain because... Explain that, because it could... Maybe it is his brother. There are... Um, Little people who are born into, you know, into big, normal families or big, large sized. <laughs> into big. <laughs> They're an opposite of Muppets. <laughs> there are albinos born to people who have, or who don't have those, that skin condition. 
Right. So is that is the is puppetry just genetic condition? Like you said, because we don't see any. Well, no, we see the movements, and, and they are puppet characters that are not part of the Muppet gang. The evil purple guy uh, says he is a Muppet, and that the bear is 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 part of the Muppet sort of system world. Uh, so the Muppets are new, also, and they are not. They are Muppets. explicitly not Muppets. So that general. So I guess there is there is a race of beings. Puppet beings. Uh, and that, are, that are not the and Muppets is this group of friends yeah. and show especially since they're they a band talk about the name being you yeah. would lose it so what I would look for in that is in the dance numbers restaurant anywhere just seed one or two an extra who is a Muppet yeah yeah, and just be like no yeah they out there in the real world like Greg the Money or Avenue Q right I'm not bothered by the adoption thing or the not mention of why they're brothers but uh the not seeing the extras, now that you mention it, that is a little odd. Now, it, there is a certain rarity to it because he says he's never met another uh, person, like him. person like him. So it's weird that they become full-grown so quickly because he's three feet tall when the when the when, when Jason Siegel is three feet tall and then uh, remains at that height while Jason Siegel continues to grow. So they reach maturity much faster. They're like horses in that yeah. way. <laughs> So they yeah so they must not be human they must not and there must not be a human genetic condition if he matures that quickly okay I'm just, there is a genetic I don't know where you got to not human that sounds just well no I'm like saying a, a, a midget uh, racial purity going on no no, no I was saying a midget doesn't when they're their full height of like three and a half feet they don't get three and a half feet when a when a when a, a regular person becomes three and a half feet and then stop they get to three and a half feet at the age when they hit puberty and stuff. So a Muppet ages at a different rate. There's the other... Um, also, it was weird that none of the Muppets aged except for the chickens. How did the chickens age? They were a lot more wrinklier. They're the, like, red, droopy stuff. Like, his, his like, secretary sort of looked like an old lady. Oh, right. Like, she was implied to be the chicken who looked like just a regular chicken in the from the series. None of the other Muppets aged. I don't know how you'd show wrinkle lines around Kermit's eyes or anything. <laughs> That was odd, I thought. I was, I was like, yeah, if they're all ageless, I'm sort of okay with that as being a fantastical element, but um, only the chickens age. Oh, and the food. The food age. Oh, yeah. There's an, another odd thing about Walter is that he's the only one who's not a animal. or an, Like, Gonzo is a something. Like, he's not a specific animal, but he's a thing that's clearly not a, like, a person Muppet. And Scooter. Scooter. Swedish chef. Is a, a gopher. Oh, right. he's supposed to be a gopher. In the, see, I found this out in the original series. Like he gets a job as a gopher because he's a gopher, and his uncle owned the theater. Like there's oh. there's like this whole plot line in the first season wow. of the show. The the theater owner is trying to throw them out, and they're constantly like trying to make their show more successful uh, in order to keep the theater. And because they give Scooter a job, uh, he. That helps them in their, in their... But Swedish chef, you're correct. Well, actually, no, you're, he's not human because he's Swedish. <laughs> oh, so he's a rapist and murderer. <laughs> right. Based on um, what we'll be discussing next week with Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, every six out of eight Swedish men are violent, sadistic rapists and murderers. 
<laughs> Entirely true. I forgot that that was recorded. <laughs> so there's 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 a few problems here, and there's a few logic issues. But mostly, see, I, I feel like this is the problem with with film criticism in general is the things that are interesting to talk about are the sort of flaws. It's highly enjoyable the entire way through. I loved every minute of it and I and as well you know nostalgia piled on top of that which you didn't have quite so much of but you still liked the movie yeah a I lot that the tone and everything about it was great the gags like I mentioned the uh, screaming them cutting to or not just seeing Pink's hot dogs uh, the building and knowing it from being in LA but they had a great joke where they're trying to find Kermit and the Muppets to round them back up and they're driving and they see the guy selling star maps in front of Pink's hot dogs he's like wait I've got an idea and the next shot is of them eating hot dogs. And they're like, that was a great idea. <laughs> now, how are we going to find Kermit? Right. Although, I must say, that bit is pretty old. I'm not going to say they, you know, ripped I, it off from anywhere specifically. But well, that's, I guess, that's part of the thing of uh, the Muppets. Like, a lot of their jokes are old jokes. Going back to the television show, a lot of their jokes were old jokes. Yeah. Like, part of that is the they were in vaudeville in a time, even though they're not. Yeah, like, I don't think... imitating... That, the in the seventies, that they were, <laughs> Jim but Hinton this is actually there is a a principle uh, that uh, in joke telling that I I did not know has changed. Like currently, uh, as a stand up, if you steal someone's joke, you will be ostracized. People won't go on stage with you. Like this is like the worst thing a comedian can do is steal someone else's joke. Apparently, this is a new invention in the last fifty years or something. Back in the vaudeville days, a joke was a joke. And whoever told the joke best got to tell it. A lot of the jokes that like Henny Youngman would say were not jokes that he came up with. He heard other comedians tell them, and then he told them, and because everybody liked his style of delivery, he became famous. And comedians were just okay with that. And so part of that ethos from the vaudeville era is incorporated into the Muppets in that they do use jokes that are sort of old and almost cliched. How they're packaged or delivered. Right, and they do them... Kind of because everyone else is afraid to do them nowadays because right. they've seen them a million times. They just do it straight and they do that's the joke and you haven't seen it done straight as opposed to undercut or parodied or you know uh, some variation on a joke. They just do the joke and you haven't seen that in so long. It seems it's fresh. Everything that's old is new again. I think that maybe in the modern age, especially with IUC like the RIAA and everything, intellectual authorship has become very important and kind of the digital age, so maybe that's where it comes from more, is that people, it's not just the production of telling the joke that you're getting paid for that work, it's the intellectual work that you put in to create it has become more highly valued. But One last thought, not enough Beaker in the movie. I think my two favorites, Swedish Chef and Beaker, Swedish Chef had a few bits, and you know, they, Beaker had the uh, Large Hydrogen Collider, he was there, and then... The barbershop quartet. He comes up with the axe. It's hilarious. They all look at him and then he changes it. Yeah. Uh, goes, me, me. When they sing Smells Like Teen Spirit, he sings all of the swear words. Like, if you if you know the song well enough, which is hard to do, you, like, you have to look at the lyrics to know the words of that song anyway. But any of the swear words or any of the, like, references to sex, it's him beeping. Nice. At, like, when, when they all hold up the signs with the various rhyming things, I can't remember what the word is, but the words that he has there's going to be me, 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 is something really dirty. Hilarious. Yeah. It's, it's, so as a, as a joke that children would not understand. Well, and a joke that clearly, you know, people may miss even if you, right. even if you know it smells like Teen Spirit and you grew up with it, you don't, it's a lot of mumbling. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of 
random heroin like <laughs> even people that do a lot of heroin wouldn't catch the, a lot of the references because they're so, they're obscure. And speaking of Nirvana, Dave Grohl plays the animal equivalent in the Muppets, right. and he didn't come back. I was really disappointed. I wanted him to say something funny just because Dave Grohl has a funny personality and stuff. I, don't know I no longer like Dave Grohl, so I was okay what with did, him being in the background. What did Dave Grohl do to you? He did nothing. <laughs> if you listen to K Rock here in Los Uh-oh. Angeles. Especially uh, Kevin and Bean in the morning. That's, I drive in in the morning and that's all I... I listen to Ayn Rand books on my okay. way to work. Clearly. <laughs> but still, they play the Foo Fighters oh. every third okay. it is just That's not Dave Grohl's fault. It is that's Dave Grohl's fault because he's their friend. He like would come in the studio mm-hmm. and give them like special tickets to secret shows. And, and if it's not that... It is Nirvana or Queens of the Stone Age. Like, like, I get enraged when I hear it. I'm like, play something else, anything else. It's just overdone to the point of nausea. It's so, I blame Dave Grohl because he's the <laughs> tying thread in all of those. I don't know if he was coming in and giving out Handy J's in the K-Rock offices no. or why they love them so much. In summation, <laughs> it had a lot of heart, great humor, just was very genuine. Since we liked it so much, there, was, there wasn't a lot to critique in it aside from small fridge logic problems or maybe the motivations of some of the characters. But again, looking at it in like a societal context, I still think that it's got some problems with finding the right audience or knowing what it people knowing what it's going to be. But that's not a reflection of quality. That's just a poor poor marketing and, and uh, sort of... I mean, that's their problem, basically. Like, right. And this, us as the audience, that doesn't affect us, our enjoyment of it. Right. It might be more like uh, another one of those sign of the times that there might not be a place for them in this modern world, which is the theme of the movie, but I don't think the ending of it really said, no, yes, we're here to stay. It kind of said, hey, maybe we'll limp on for... <laughs> well, if you if you actually ignore the after credit sequence, then that's probably the most appropriate ending. Is that yeah. there's a group of people that are very passionate about it, and everyone else, but they're they're not popular enough to actually raise a significant amount of money in order to continue their business. <laughs> yeah, we'll wait and see if the world decides whether to go with the actual ending or the after credit ending. History will decide. People of the future <laughs> listening to this podcast, please email us and let us know. That's right. If you agree or disagree with us, send us an email at too much at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. This is what we-